I uh, remember when I was a third year at university, I met a first year. He'd uh, been brought up in a Christian home and so when he arrived at university, he came along to the Christian Union. Uh, We met there and I got to know him a little bit uh, in the the year that I was still around. Uh, But he was exhausting to talk to uh, because you never knew what you'd get. Uh, His confidence as a Christian went up and down like a yo-yo. Uh, If he'd led what he thought of as a a good and godly week, well, then things were okay. He he was on a high. But if he hadn't, uh, if his week had been marked by doubts or or mistakes, well, then he wasn't even sure he was a Christian. Or or let me tell you about a woman I knew in a a previous church. Uh, She'd become a Christian in her late teens, Uh, And not long before she headed off to university, and at university she got heavily involved in in anything she could, uh, Christian union meetings, uh, the local church that she joined, she uh, led some Bible studies, served on committee. Uh, Into her 20s uh, she moved to a new city uh, with with a job, Uh, got stuck into a new church there, helped out with uh, with the children's work I think it was. Uh, Later she got married to a man she met at the church, they began to lead a home group together on top of everything else. And a couple of years later, she had their first child and suddenly everything stopped. Uh, The home group wouldn't fit into their house uh, and so um, they they couldn't both go because of babysitters, so she stepped out of leading that. Church on a Sunday coincided with feed times uh, for the first six months or so at least, uh, so that she came off the rotor for the children's work. Uh, Pretty soon she was doing none of the ministry that she'd been so involved in since she first became a Christian. And her relationship with God nosedived. After nearly ten years of outwardly looking like a keen and committed Christian, she suddenly realised that her Christian faith was all built up around the things that she did for God, instead of what God had done for her in the Lord Jesus. Or let me tell you about Mark. Uh, He's a guy who was at school with me Uh, and in our lower sixth year uh, he came along to a guest event that our church had put on and after a couple of months of thinking and asking questions uh, he made a profession of faith. Uh, He'd understood Jesus' death on the cross uh, that that's what can make us right with God. Uh, But then a year later when we left school uh, he went uh, on a gap year, he worked uh, in industry for a company And his newfound faith quickly fell by the wayside as he adopted the lifestyle of people around him in particular. uh, For him it it was drinking lots and sleeping around. Uh, And although he knew the Bible well enough to know that those things weren't consistent with being a Christian, he decided that if God was just out to spoil his fun, well then he'd rather not be a Christian at all. Uh, He'd be better off trusting his own judgment rather than that of God. Well, three people with very different symptoms, but I think the same underlying problem. And that is that all of them thought too little of God and too much of themselves. And a more dangerous combination you can scarcely find. See, if your confidence is placed in yourself and not in God, or then like that guy at university with me, you'll never be certain where you stand with the Lord. You never know when you might blow it. If your confidence is placed in yourself and not God, then like that young mum, 
you have to keep up the, the endless activity, this unsustainable level of, of Christian work, because you end up finding your identity in that rather than in the Lord. And if your confidence is placed in yourself and not God, then like my school friends, as soon as you reach a time when you're pulling one way and God pulls the other, you know which way things are going to end up. Thinking too little of God, too much of ourselves, but these dangers aren't new. Uh, We find it throughout the history of the Bible, uh, but not least in Deuteronomy 10. It would be very helpful if you could have it open in front of you uh, so that you could check what I have to say against it. It's page uh, 189 and 190. Here we join Moses uh, speaking to the people of Israel uh, and they face a choice. Uh, Really, they face a second chance. Uh, Israel have been chosen by God to be his special people. And they've been brought, rescued out of Egypt, brought to the edge of the promised land, a place that God had promised them and said that when they got there, uh, things would be great for them. But last time they were at the edge of this promised land, their confidence wasn't in God. Uh, They didn't trust God's promise that they would go in and take this land. Instead, they had confidence in themselves, or rather they didn't have confidence enough in themselves that they saw that the people there were were rather big and scary and so they refused to go they said they'd rather go back to Egypt and so God made them stay in the desert region for 40 years until a whole generation had died out and yet here they are now back again and Moses is saying to them don't make the same mistake twice Don't think too little of God or too much of yourselves. Instead, have total confidence in God and no confidence in yourselves. Total confidence in God, no confidence in yourselves. That's the message of this chapter 10. And I think Moses spells out why our confidence should be in God and not us. And then also how we do that in practice. So look with me. The first reason for why our confidence, our total confidence, should be in God, is his forgiveness. Have a look at verse 1 again. Page 189. At that time the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also make a wooden chest. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Then you are to put them in the chest. He's talking about the the Ten Commandments. See, the first uh, set of Ten Commandments, chiselled out on stone blocks, uh, had barely been completed before the people broke the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet what was going on? Well, down at the bottom of the mountain... Aaron, Moses' brother, had got the people together to to bring him enough jewellery and gold to turn into a golden calf to which they bowed down in worship. And so those two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments were smashed by Moses. Moses then spent the next 40 days praying to God, 
not to destroy the people, for they had turned their backs on the one who'd rescued them from Egypt. And amazingly, Moses' prayer is answered. God doesn't destroy them, and instead, here at the start of chapter 10, these tablets are redone. The Ten Commandments are rewritten. Well, I mean, they stay the same, but God writes them out again on new tablets. And here, they're not going to be broken again. No, they're to be kept safe in this ark, this wooden box that Moses was to create. Well, next we find that even Aaron, the the one who was in charge of this dreadful thing that the people did, making this golden calf, even he isn't destroyed. No, instead he carries on. Verse 6, the Israelites travelled from the wells of the Jaconites to Mosera. There Aaron died. It's many years later. Aaron reaches a a good old age. Uh, What's more, when he dies, his son takes over from him. His line carries on in this role of being priest, of being the one who allows uh, the people to know God. Indeed, verse 8 and 9 there show that the whole priestly system continues as a means of God's blessing for his people. It's all signs of God's forgiveness. Are they destroyed? No, they live. Are they cut off from God? No, the, the priest survives and continues. But the biggest sign of God's forgiveness is there at the end of verse 10 and verse 11. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. See, instead of destroying them, God tells them to continue on to the promised land. He'll still keep his promise to them. God keeps his promise even when his people turn from them. He forgives them. And so they could have confidence in him. See, God God was so determined to uh, take a people for himself and put them in a place where they would know him and live a life that is wonderful that he would redo stone tablets. He would provide a priesthood to perform sacrifices for their sin. Ultimately, he is so determined that he would send his one and only son to die our death, to be our sacrifice. And so we can have confidence in him. Total confidence, because even in the face of the total failure of his people... God keeps his promise. Now for you today, that might look like this. Uh, Maybe you have a sin in your minds. You you know you've done something in the past. Uh, Perhaps you keep doing it. And you know that God wouldn't be happy about it. And we end up thinking, well, I've blown it then. I could never have God as a friend. I could never have God uh, as my father. Or perhaps it's just that you compare yourselves to other Christians and think that you don't match up. Like that guy a couple of years below me at university, you end up being blown this way and that depending on your recent obedience, thinking that that's what defines your relationship with God. 
But no, our relationship with God doesn't depend on us. We're not to have confidence in ourselves. We're to have confidence in him because when we stuff up, when we do things that he wouldn't like, we can look to him for forgiveness. We must look to him for forgiveness. And for us, the body and blood of Jesus are powerful enough to forgive any sin. His death on the cross, his death that we'll remember later on in the service as we share bread and wine together, that is where we have our confidence. Because of God's forgiveness, our confidence is in him. Not in us. We fail, but he forgives And yet, perhaps at the back of our minds, we're thinking a bit like this. Yes, I know that I I fail. I know that I don't always do the right thing. I know that when that's the case, Jesus is there. I need to trust him. But there's still plenty of things that I do that are are okay, that I do well. I, I serve God in my life. I serve God in things at church. For many here, I know that you do. But how easy it is to to start letting that translate into thinking that God saved us, he chose us, he keeps his promises to us, he forgives us because of those things. Because of the good things. That's why he overlooks the bad things. It's because actually, deep down, we're pretty special. Well, that's a mistake. Uh, The next reason why we should have confidence in God, knocks on the head. Uh, We've looked at God's forgiveness for where we fail. Uh, The next reason is this, it's God's love. It's God's love for us. Have a look at verse 14. Uh, Just over the page. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. You see, we may think that we're special, that we're impressive. But in comparison to whom? You see, God is the creator and owner of the whole universe. Everything and everyone in it. Do we really think that we impress him? Psalm 139, uh, if you know, it says that God knows our every thought before we think it, our every word before we say it, our every action before we undertake it. Do we really think that we impress him? We're nobodies. We're, We're totally insignificant to someone that powerful, surely. And yet, verse 15... Yet the Lord set his affection on and loves and chooses his people. The people who aren't impressive. Even by the world's standards. I wonder if you noticed that in our our other reading in 1 Corinthians. Uh, No need to turn to it. Let me read a couple of verses that Rob read out for us. Uh, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. 
We're not impressive. And yet the Lord sets his love on us if we're his people. Our Deuteronomy 10 carries on, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Uh, Sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, To be impartial and unbribable, they're great qualities. But not for the unimpressive, they're not. Uh, Not for the weak, the foolish and the lowly. You see, if God is impartial, we'd expect him to go only for the most deserving. When do you bribe, you bribe someone when you want them to, to look over the person who should have won and give the prize to the person who didn't do so well? And yet here, God is impartial and he is unbribable, but he doesn't go for the impressive. He doesn't go for the best. Verse 18 He defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow. He loves the the alien. See, it's the weak, the poor, the outcast. That's who God chooses. And so we're to have no confidence in ourselves. If you are a Christian here tonight, God didn't choose you because you earned it. He didn't dig deep down into your personality and see the, the, the little nugget of gold that was worth forgiving you for. No, he just does it because he loves you. In spite of who you are, even though the world might think that it's a crazy choice. And at face level, that may sound unflattering, but it's wonderful news because it means your relationship with him is secure beyond anything. Because it doesn't depend on the things that you do for him. Don't fall into the trap of that young mum who when her baby was born and her activity stopped, realised that she'd been putting her confidence in herself instead of God. No, we trust him. We trust Jesus. That's what we're doing when we take bread and wine later in the service. It's saying that we remember that it is Jesus who keeps God's promises. It is Jesus who opens the way for us to benefit from them. We have total confidence in God and no confidence in ourselves. Because God is the one who forgives us even though we fail. And God is the one who loves us even though we're unimpressive. But then how do we do it? We've seen why to do it. Why have confidence in God and and not ourselves? What does it look like to have our confidence in God alone? Well, I think it's that central section here, verses 12 and onwards. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. What will dependence on God look like? What will it mean to have confidence in him and not me? Well, the phrases here, they they pile up, don't they? And and although they overlap in meaning, let's consider them in turn. See, first here is to fear the Lord your God. Now that doesn't mean to be, to be frightened. 
uh, not knowing what God might do next. Often when we talk about fear, it's in that sense, isn't it? So people tend to be afraid of animals, it seems to me, that, that move erratically. Uh, the spider that scuttles, the rat that can pop out from under anything. But no, to fear God is to act in light of his predictability, not his unpredictability. It's to act in light of his character, in light of his promises. It is to take God seriously for who he is. That's an imperfect illustration, but I guess it's the same way that a football team might fear uh, the, the top striker on the opposing team. They don't fear him because they think that he might jump out of them in, out of them in the dressing room and give them a shock. Uh, they fear him because they know that when he gets the ball, chances are he's going to score. And they don't even just say, oh, we're really afraid of that guy. That, that's not this sort of fear. To, to fear the striker properly, properly is to say... We fear him so much that we've made sure that we structure our team so that he's always got two defenders on him at any time. It's to say, I'm going to act in light of how good he is, how predictable his skill is. It's that sort of sense here. To fear the Lord is to say, I know what he's like. I know his commands. I know I don't meet them, I know I break them like his people broke that first one and so I'll fear him by trusting him I'll look to him for forgiveness see if we're to have total confidence in God we must take him seriously on X verse 12 it says to walk in all his ways uh, walking, I guess, indicates that this is ongoing. It's daily. And it is to be like God. Be holy because I am holy, is what the Lord says. And that could we, we could apply it to any area of our lives, I suppose. But, but let's take the example that's expanded on here in verse 18. See, now God loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Uh, just one example of what it means to, to walk in all his ways. But how are we at loving the outsider? That might m- include those from other countries, uh, refugees and asylum seekers here in Sheffield. We've been talking as a staff team recently about a couple of schemes that are being run in Sheffield to help asylum seekers as they struggle with extreme poverty and difficulty, as they wait for hearings and appeals. And David Todd, who was up earlier, is going to be writing an article uh, giving some information about them in the next Church Family News. Look out for that. That's the sort of thing that, that God is interested in. And so if we want to walk in his ways, well then we'll be interested in them too. We're to love people like that because God does. If we have total confidence in him, we'll want to do what he says. We'll want to be like him. But also we're to love people like that, verse 19, because we were like them. And yet God chose us. You see? For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. It's that point from 1 Corinthians. uh, The weak the lowly, the things that are not. That's who God chooses. That's who we are if we're his people today. And so how can we turn our backs 
on those who are excluded by others. That might be the person in your halls that everyone else ignores or makes fun of. It's the person at work that winds everyone else up and is excluded. It's the family member that none of the rest of your family talked to since that bust-up a few years ago. Walk in all his ways. Well, the list goes on. We're to love God. We're to serve him with everything we've got. We're to observe his commands. We're to do what he says. And if you want a reason, uh, look at that final phrase in verse 13. These things are for your own good. We can have total confidence in God's commands because they're for our good. And how often do we get that wrong in our thinking? When we listen to the teaching that Jesus gives to his people and we think to ourselves, what a drag. Surely not. Maybe I'll do bits, but not all of it. Or maybe we're a bit bit more Christian than that. Uh, We say, uh, well, these commands are a pain in the neck, but Jesus did go to the cross for me, so I guess this is a small price to pay in return. I'll do it because I'm grateful for what he did for me. So even though it's a chore, I don't mind too much. Do you ever think like that? Or don't? God doesn't give us his commands as a test to see how grateful we are as a cro- for the cross, how much we'd be willing to put up with. He doesn't do it to spoil our fun. That's what my friend at school thought, or started to think in his gap year. God doesn't do it to burden us. He gives us commands because they're good for us. They describe life as it should be lived, life as it will be lived, in the new creation, finally and fully, when Jesus returns and we're made to be like him. This is the life that we've been saved for. So we need to trust God. We we need to have total confidence in him and no confidence in ourselves. Confidence that he knows what's best for us, that he wants what's best for us. And we know we can trust him Because he's done what's best for us. His son, beaten and battered, abandoned and alone. And if he's done that, as it says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? When we think of what Jesus has done for us, It is such a little thing that God asks of us. I love the way that it puts it in verse 12. Now, O Israel, now, after all that God has done for you, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him? And it goes on. And part of me wants to say, yes, of course. God's asking me to do just what I want to do anyway. He's asking me to do things that are for my good, for my benefit, for my joy and my delight. It's as though he's not asking me anything at all. My confidence will be in him, not me. But another part of me looks at this verse and thinks, what is he asking me but to fear him, to walk in all his ways, to serve him with all my heart and all my soul? I I can't even begin to do it. 
And yet there again, I need to remember that I can have total confidence in God and no confidence in myself. It's not back to being about whether or not I can do it. No, ultimately, it is Jesus who will deal where I fail. It is Jesus who is the one who perfectly keeps God's commands and yet who allows me to share his righteousness. It's he who gives me his spirit to help me to start to live in line with what God wants. And so it is he who I trust. Because he brings God's forgiveness, he's the fullest expression of God's love, he even fulfills what it means to place your confidence in God alone. So that I'm just left praising him. See verse 21 there? The way this concludes. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Well, for them the wonders were the escape from Egypt, but we've seen even more wonders than they. Because we've seen the Lord Jesus, God himself, come down to die for you and me. In a moment we're going to sing a great hymn of praise to him. Just have a look at the words of the second verse with me. There on the sheets. See how it starts? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. See, the devil would love us to look for confidence in ourselves. He knows it leads to despair. But what do we do in response? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. We place our total confidence in the Lord.